So we read the, the passage in Acts, and uh, this is the series that we're in. We've called um, just very, very, very simply, we just called it Devoted. Devoted. It started on Pentecost Sunday. If you're brand new to the way of Jesus, Pentecost Sunday is this day that we celebrate. It's sort of the birth of the church, and it's the giving of the Holy Spirit. It, it, Jesus says, I'm going to like, send my spirit among you. We'll live inside you and remind you of what I taught you. And we learn the spirit empowers and equips. And there are different portions of like our understanding and grace of our gifts to be able to understand what God's doing in our midst. It's this, the aspect when we, when we talk about when we pray, as far as Jesus, when we pray to God, we're told in the scripture what we're really doing is praying to the Holy Spirit and being dialed into the things of the Spirit. And so what happened in the early church was there was this epic moment of the Holy Spirit descends, this new revelation and understanding and empowerment from God that had been prophesied from long ago comes crashing in, and then they began to devote themselves to a bunch of things. Now, these are descriptive, not prescriptive, but I think it's a pretty good place to start. This is what they began to do. When the Spirit of God comes on you, when you recognize deeper the full revelation of God's love, when you recognize that you don't pledge allegiance to a nation or a president, but to Jesus, when you begin to realize God is on the throne and this first and foremost is is the way of life, this is the life of heaven now, they began to devote themselves. And last week we talked about the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to knowing more about God. I'm just so happy to announce there are a number of folks who took that small, humble little sermon and just rededicated their life to knowing God and knowing theology and understanding the things of God deeper that they might walk in greater beauty and life and justice. That's a good thing. I get privy to some fun emails. A lot of awful emails, but some fun emails every once in a while. So today, I want to talk about community. They devoted themselves to like one another all throughout this passage that Renee just read, you have the sense of oh, they are bound together. They committed to one another. They're being invited, if you're familiar with, this, again, the scripture, to be like a new temple. A temple not built with wood and straw, but with people, with ligaments. Built up with people. God now resides fully within his people. This is why it doesn't matter where we meet. There's no special sacred place. The ground is holy and the earth is full of God's glory. So it begged a question when I thought about preaching on this. A couple things came to mind. One, a conversation that I have pretty often with some of you, which is, I'd like to maybe get involved in your church, but I've been burned so many times. I've been burned so many. I just, I don't know what to do. I, I don't think I could put my gifts back out there. I don't think I, I can do that again. I, I heard you guys are, you know, a nice and safe and loving place, but my gosh, I, I, I just, it's, it's a struggle for me to even think about re-engaging with a church. I'm going to just kind of kind of come on a Sunday and sit in the back. Two, some folks who um, won't be in the room right now, or maybe this is your story and you slipped away from another church. Any folks supposed to be at Wren this morning instead of here? Don't raise your hand. I actually don't want to know because then I'm going to come and talk to you. You're supposed to be at this other church today. You slipped out. Look, I understand you want to find a community that's a good fit for you, but there's some folks who just slip out. 
and they never really get involved and engaged, and then they wonder why they never really found community. It's because they never put themselves out there, but there's a lot of hardship in being, like, being able to do that. It's hard being involved and engaged with community. It's hard. And another thing just to consider as I, as I dive into this is as soon as some of you heard Andrew's going to talk for the next 30 minutes on being devoted to each other, you tapped out. Because I'm not talking about something racy. You already agree that I should be devoted to other people. In fact, you're like, man, I wonder if you're new with us. Maybe you're running through this lens. And some of you who've been around know this, right? It's like, I want to be a part of a church. I want them to be friendly, but not too friendly. Just like a nice, apathetic middle. Like, I want to be seen. I want to be seen. But, you know, don't push it too hard. Don't force me to get involved with a home group. That's the only place church happens. I I just want to come on Sunday. I want the sermon to be nice. I'd like it to be short, but I'd like there to be some Greek words so I feel like I'm getting meat. I'd like it to be funny. I'd like it to be socially relevant. And I'd like it to be 20 minutes. (laughs) That was Renee. Renee, you're never getting this mic again. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We come with all These aren't all bad. We come with these expectations. Is this church closest to me? If it's closed, that's actually not a, not a bad thing, but I don't want to go too far for church. Is there air conditioning? Many of you are going to be horribly let down. I'm pretty convinced we don't retain certain folks strictly because they come on July 15th. There are things to consider, but what, what caused me then to ask the question, okay, what kind of church does, does Jesus imagine? What kind of church does Jesus desire? And one of the best places, and I am the last person to say this, like this has been said over and over and over. One of the best places to answer that question, scholars have said, is in Ephesians 4. So Acts 2, they devoted themselves. The Spirit comes, they devote themselves to community. What does that community to look like? There's all sorts of places we could look to. There's surveys we could do. In some way, this is almost what we talk about every week like through this lens. But I want to dive into a couple things because I think this is critical as we head toward, I know it's just the beginning of the summer, but as we do head toward the fall and a new season of vision, some things that God wants to do in our midst and some kind of big reorganization we actually want to do this fall. I actually think this and some of the messages we're going to do this summer are going to be helpful in helping allowing God to stir in us his heart for each other. Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So he just sets it, let you stop there. First of all, you've all received the calling. The little announcement that I just gave about we, we all are, are, are been given to works of ministry, to acts of ministry. There's a call on our life. A thing we are dedicating ourselves to starting in September, or start actually earlier with some of our our leaders, is to make sure that people have a better understanding of their calling in the kingdom of God. What that is, and then how do we throw resources and money and energy and prayer better at you that you might lean into the things that God has called you to do. So he starts, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You, me, We're to measure our success against the call of God on our life. So many folks get jacked up. Can I get an amen on this? So many folks get jacked up 
because they are living out somebody else's calling on their life. Like that's, that, well, what they're doing seems to be the thing that I should be doing. And you measure how good you're doing against their call. We see this in the New Testament. Jesus calls out John, right? It's one of these great stories where he just goes, look, I, it doesn't matter what I do with him. You're called to something else. Stop looking at that. What are you called to do? What are you been invited to? There's an assumption here in this text. I don't think it's just to the church in the city of Ephesus where this is written. I don't think it's just to them. I think this applies to all of us. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And then he says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the pond of peace. I'm going to stop there. First thing, the kind of church Jesus desires is a united church. He desires a united church. There's a whole message I could give on like churches in general in our city and the invitation and the things that God's actually doing in our city. I'm not going to do that right now. I want to talk internally in our internal unity. And what does that look like? So in this text, he lays out a couple words that I want to spend a little time on. One, in verse two, it says, be completely humble. At a time where like differentiation is getting more and more extreme in our world. Where separation seems to grow and grow and grow between people. We're invited to be humble. We're invited to be humble and, and, and to think of one another as better in ourselves, Paul says, in a, in a time where our margin is getting crushed. On how we're supposed to live out being a New Testament church on just tiny snippets of time. Be completely humble. So there's a compound word that literally means to think or judge with lowliness. The word here is to think or judge with lowliness. Uh, scholars uh, talk about, a number of scholars I found as I was reading about this text, they talk about how this, this word didn't actually exist. They can't find it anywhere else other than in the scriptures. Most words that are used in the scriptures didn't like they didn't fall out of the sky. This is built in a context, and it's how we can better understand passages. Oh, this was used in this piece of literature like that that helps us better understand what's getting said. They can't find this anywhere. And they realized, many have talked about how the Greeks absolutely despised this quality. The Greeks despised humility. It would be like in our age saying things like, hey, church, Make sure you have really low self-esteem. Bless you. Right? You all would go, I went to a church today and the pastor told me that I should have low self-esteem. Right? That is like, we are allergic to that idea in our current time. One writer says, this is essentially what humility would have been. In fact, these first church writers then had to come up with a word to kind of explain, invent a word of what was happening. Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. Be gentle and humble in heart, Jesus says. The Greeks thought humility as described by the church was, quote, unnatural. For a person to possess an instinct where they are voluntarily humble. At the core of this word is a mindset that says this. What a privilege it is to be in a room full of people greater than me. What a privilege it is to be in a small group, a home group, and people better than me. Ah, man, the, that person is just so much better than me in their middle management at their media company. 
Oh, and look at you. Like, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're jobless and have no money. I, you are better than me. Oh, you, yeah, you're struggling with pretty epic addiction and just got out of jail. Cool, yeah, you're better than me. It's to literally adopt the very things in our world that place us into a sense of hierarchy and to say, no, no way, I'm going to see everyone. Have you ever been in a room uh, where people don't realize that they aren't the center of attention? You ever been in a room where someone walks in and they have a certain swagger or tone or things they're saying and they are not, like, self-aware enough to realize, like, Nobody cares that you're here. We're all here for them. No? You ever had this moment? Like someone just not gauging, like, you, you, you should probably quiet, quiet down. A friend of mine, this is, a, I was trying to find, like, think of a, a more relatable story, but I have, a, I have a friend, he's a pastor in New York, and he's, he's, he describes his life as like, um, like Forrest Gump. Like, he just finds himself, you know, he's a phenomenal teacher, but, you know, leader of a humble church, but finds himself in all of these, like, kind of big deal settings. He's telling a story about meeting the Pope alongside some other Protestant churches. The Pope was reaching out to a bunch of Protestant pastors, a room full of 50 people, and he's in this room. And he said there was one gentleman there who's like a rock star in Protestant American Western evangelicalism, whatever that is. And, uh, and he... <laughs> And whoever, a rock star preacher, like the whole idea is anathema. That's a different sermon. Um, and he, he comes in and he just starts talking to, like, to the Pope and to the leaders in a way that is like, look, we're not bowing down to the Pope here, but do you realize who that is and who you are? Like just really, really, really awkward. Like everyone in the room read this except this guy who's sort of being like, hey, look at me. Like the, the, the Pope, the, the Pope, just, you might even not even like him, but the Pope, like just no one else is here to see you, the Pope. That's at least how he describes it. Have the mindset that everyone is your superior. That's what's being said here. Don't judge them. We are called to be completely humble. This is what Jesus desires. A unified church is going to be a humble church too. Be gentle. This has the connotation of a wild animal that has been tamed. So it's strength, but it's under control. Followers of Jesus are called to be passionate. Amen? Passionate. Paul is passionate. The writer Paul. You read him, if you're new to the scriptures, just read like Philippians. And he is just like, he is all the way. He is to 10. He is 100. He is extra. Like he is just going for it. What's, what's being told here is not don't have passion and don't have zeal. It's keep it under, have strength that's under control. In our culture, in community, it's hard to be gentle when we're so opinionated. When we have zeal about every single thing. Rarely, right, do you hear things like, man, that's a really great opinion. You don't have to consider that. I've never thought about that before. Let me, oh, I'll get back to you on that. It's really good. No! You have some random snippet of information in some sort of conflict, and we fire back. Be gentle. This is not a quality that we see exhibited in our culture at the current moment. At least I don't. It's passion that's reined in for the sake of the community. It's not about not being a prophet. It's not about not speaking truth to power. It's not about any of that. It's being aware of how. Because that matters. And if you actually want to change something, it matters a lot. That's another message too. Got like a lot of spinoff sermons today. Third, patient. 
long, the, 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 the word here is basically long-suffering toward aggravating people. Straight up. Patience. What's being described here, what's kind of getting at, like the texture around this word in the language is long-suffering toward people that are aggravating, essentially. So I want you to know it's really hard for me as a pastor is dealing with aggravating and annoying people. None of you, just the other people that aren't here today. Right? And what's really aggravating about you coming to a church is you got to deal with annoying pastors and staff. There was no amen. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I expected at least somebody to be like, amen. Renee, where was it? Where were you on that one? <laughs> People are by nature aggravating. Right? Why? Because there's all these little idiosyncrasies. It's why we gather toward people that we are like. Because if they have the same idiosyncrasies that we have, we'll have a better chance of being friends for the long haul. What I love about a couple of our home groups is they are weird. Some of our home groups make total sense. Oh, a bunch of young professionals who roughly live in this part of the city, who are in the roughly the same economic bracket, who like mostly the same things. And that's a beautiful thing, by the way. It's really great. Oh, that group over there, oh, it's, yeah, they all have children. At least there's something that bonds them. There's a couple home groups in our community that are like, <laughs> only by the reality of Jesus. Like, anyone wants a proof illustration for how God could exist, just go to that home group and see these people hanging out together. It is the weirdest, most idiosyncratic group of people ever. And God loves that. Loves that. We dismiss people and we categorize people when we're supposed to be patient with them. Right? Jesus has asked the question, if someone in my home group sins against me, can I find a new home group? This is essentially the question he has asked. And Jesus' response is what? Nope. <laughs> I say that like always slightly tongue-in-cheek, but Jesus is like, you, you got to forgive them. Someone sins against you, you got to walk it out. No other community in the world offers this kind of patience. If we don't get this right, what is our message to the world? We have to model our solution to the world. I've said this before, but man, it's so easy to ascend to ideas, is it not? Community is good. Love is good. Peace and grace are good. Everybody believes that. Show me what it is when that person hurt you, that you were able to come and meet with them, and as far as you were able, it says in Scripture, to make peace with them. Just recently, there were a few folks in our community who invited me in to mediate a situation that they were going through. It was hard and brutal, and halfway through, I thought, this is not going to go well. And by the end, there were hugs and tears and a commitment, a commitment to, to, to get back on, the, back on the train, back in the car, back in the community, back in the house together. I'm telling you, when you see stuff like that amongst just casual group of friends, there's no external pressure except for the internal like conviction of the Spirit. We can't talk about being a voice of peace and unity and love to the city if we can't model it here. That doesn't mean we're not going to be perfect. We're hypocrites like everybody else. But by the grace of God and by the love and mercy of God, we are empowered to keep getting back up. And we are called to obey. It's a command. We don't like to talk about commands. 
yeah, you're loved exactly where you're at. And with every failed friendship you have, this isn't about God's like looking down all mad at you. But God's like, if you want to walk in the way of life, if you love me, do, do what I say. I'm telling you, it's the best possible way to live. It's your best life. <laughs> Suffering love is a distinctive mark of the early church. And we could talk about this from conflict resolution all the way to martyrdom. Suffering love. Just say that word back to me. Say, say that phrase, suffering love. Yeah, it's not good love. People are like, yeah, suffering love. Amen, praise Jesus. Suffering, this is the first part. The first part. Suffering, Suff suffering, suffering. Don't race to love, Suff suffering. To greater love. Greater love, greater love, that someone would lay down their life for their friend. And then in the same book, love your enemy. Suffering love is a distinctive mark. Next, bearing with one another in love. It's like putting up with other people because of your love. I will put up with other people because they love me. Watching the interaction between my 15-month-old and my 4-year-old is so fun now. Because it's like, Rowan doesn't quite, my, my small 15-month-old doesn't understand, you know, really what she's doing. Or she's starting to, because she's like, she's, she like threw a bow at Harper the other day. Because she wanted to get closer to mommy. So she's starting to like figure this out. But Rowan was just being a 15-month-old, like grabs a book, and slams it down, and pushes the thing out of Harper's hand. And Harper, who's four, almost five, is a very thoughtful young, young girl. And she just goes... Rowan, now don't do that. And I can just tell internally she's like, <laughs> you know. You ever watch, remember Scrubs? And he'd have those fantasy sequences where all of a sudden it would cut away to what was happening in the lead character's mind. And it was like taking someone's head and like, <laughs> like something awful like that. I had this thought like, oh my gosh, Harper's going to, going, to, going to hit her. And so later we do a little like kind of examine at the end of the day. Like where did you get a chance to love where did you get it? Where do you feel like you saw God? What was something that was really good today? And she goes, well, I, um, I didn't get mad at Rowan. Yeah. Why? Now, she's just regurgitating an answer I know right now, but I'm hoping this begins to, like, take root. Why? Because God loves me, so I should love her. Dad points. You know, like... <laughs> No, but even though it was like the answer repeated, she knew like, that's, I know that's the thing. The more and more we recognize and experience and know and trust that the God of the universe has laid down his life for us. A bunch of people walking around, I always say this, even if you don't want to believe in any of the God stuff, just imagine you are loved so radically and beautifully at the depth of your being. Imagine you held on to that and went deeper and deeper and deeper into trusting that was part of your identity. It would change everything about you. Even if it was just a fun mental exercise, now just tack on the reality of God at work in your life. And it gets really fun. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. Jesus-centered love throws a blanket over the sins of others so we aren't stuck looking at it. Jesus-centered love... Like, it covers a multitude of sins. When we love, when we bear with one another in love, we just, 
God's love. God loves you. And sometimes, right, it's just okay to be like, God loves you way more than I can. You know? There's appropriate times for that. Cool. God cares about you way more than I do because I can't do that right now. But I know that God loves you. I know I'm supposed to. I can't because I'm going to hit you, but I'm going to go. I'm telling you, that is an amazing step in the right direction of what it looks like for us to be a united community. In order to pursue these qualities that Paul lines up, we must be willing to renounce the opposite of each. We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must renounce harshness in order to walk in gentleness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in forbearing love. And we must renounce indifference and passivity in order to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Can I get an amen? We have to do that if we're going to get this. We're going to sing this song in a moment to close out our time. And it's this song like, that's basically a song about surrender. And it uses the metaphor of new wine. In the crushing and the break, I know you are making new wine. Transformation is hard. In the repentance and in the letting go and in the pushing aside. In the saying yes to something, we have to say no to something else. God begins to make something new in us. We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility and renounce harshness in order to walk in gentleness and renounce like our own agendas in order to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in love. Why does Paul say this is how we should love? Well, quite clearly, this is just how Jesus models this for us. This is how Jesus treated people. Thomas. Thomas was like Debbie Downer, always doubting. He had the sons of thunder and all of their ego. He had Peter denying him. And you have others, right? We don't even know about, like, you know, the disciple Andrew or some of these other disciples. We don't even know about them. I just assumed because they were so annoying, they weren't even worth putting in the book. <laughs> Probably was something more than that, but. I mean, Jesus walked with difficult people. Take some time to read again the life of Jesus. Go through the book of John. Like, oh my, these folks do not get it. And because we elevate Jesus very quickly to like divine status, we forget the human nature that exists there. And actually Jesus must have been like, well, I'm just like floating like above them in calm, cool ease. Jesus had forbearing love and our model is how Jesus loves us. And remember, this is better than do unto others. This is love one another as I have loved you. Don't just do what you would want someone to do to you. That's weak. That's like a platinum rule. It's like you love because you have been loved. Paul's prayer is that we would have a united church. A united church. There's a lot I want to get to in this text. I'll just skip ahead right now to 15 and 16 and we'll wrap up. In Ephesians 4, he's talking about what it means to become mature in Christ. We'll return to this passage some other time, but in verse 15, 
He continues to go. What does what does a church that Jesus desires look like? And then in verse fifteen, instead, like don't don't be deceitful. Don't be tossed back and forth by every wave of teaching. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body. It's the church of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Jesus desires a mature church. Now, he talks first and mature of like, know the things of God. Commit yourself to knowing what God is like. Know the scriptures. Know the scriptures. This has been our call, right? In January 1st, when we, we, we gathered together here, we talked about this is going to be the year where I commit to knowing the things of the Spirit and knowing the Word more. And then he, he moves that theological maturity into relational maturity. We need to have a relational maturity if we're going to devote ourselves to community. Unity needs to be expressed then in how we're mature. How many people, right, is the question I want to put to you, love having people point out your flaws. Love that. A couple of prophets in the room be like, yeah, I love that. Shout out. How many get defensive when you hear the phrase, hey, do you have a minute? Anyone ever have someone do that to you? When I hear that, I'm always like, actually, do you have a minute? <laughs> the language here is about truthing. Speak truth in love. It's a tough time to know what truth is, right? I believe it was in the New York Times recently. This isn't like a, a this could be a dig on any leader, but this just happens to be our, our current president. <laughs> All right, there's a, we live in a post truth culture, which is basically appeals to emotional belief over facts. So the New York Times, it was six pages of things that have been said that are not true, like factually not true, that every day for a couple months there was an, an untruth or a falsehood that came out of the White House. Every day, like objectifiably. You ever been in a conversation with somebody? You're like, they're like, oh, I just don't see it that way. And you're like, you, you, you can't do that. Like, it's objectively true. Yeah, I just don't believe that that's really, like, what's going on. I don't care what you believe. Like, like look at the, the data. In my heart, I don't really interpret it like that. I see this in the church all the time. My God would never be like that. My God would never be like that. That's what happens, by the way, when you invent your own God. If your God is not offending and confronting you, you likely have invented one. How do we determine in our world what's fake and what's fake news and what's true? As followers of Jesus, this is why as a community it is critical that we reason together in the scriptures because Jesus is where we find truth. And we need truth and we need this love, this forbearing love, because truth without love is judgment and love without truth is insincere. Love without truth is insincere. You go to the doctors and <laughs> they tell you like your arms and your legs, like, or you tell the doctor like your arms and your legs like are not like they're not working well, man. I got this like tingle here and this thing is going wrong and I feel like we're super out of place. I don't know what's really happening. 
And the doctor were to come to you and be like, eh, yeah, you know, you look pretty good, though. Just do a couple push-ups. You'll be all right. No, no, you don't understand. Like, I can't feel anything on my left. No, you look good, though. Right? We'd be offended because I don't need my doctor to affirm me. That is the opposite reason I'm going to a doctor. I need you to tell me what's wrong with me. I think the reason why we're still eavesdropping on conversations with Jesus is he did this. He was a master. He, he, he spoke truth in love. He goes to the women at the well, and he doesn't just say like, hey, you know, don't listen to the Pharisees. Just be your authentic self. No, you're good. God does not care about what you do with your body and does not care about your sexuality at all. You're good. You're good. Be you. Do you. No, he says, go and sin no more. But then what else does he say? I don't condemn you. We need people who tell the truth to us and then love us through the consequences. We need people who will tell the truth to us, but love us radically through the consequences. We need people who will do both. And in Providence, it's hard to find people who will do this for you, who will devote themselves to this kind of community. We have to choose it. They devoted themselves. In light of what was happening, if Jesus is king and the spirit resides in our heart and we can know truth, let's begin to be the people of God that we are called to be. I have friends all the time who sit me down for a compliment sandwich. You got any friends who do the compliment sandwich? They come in, they say like, oh, Adrian, I just love you so much, but um, I love you so much. There's this one thing. And then they end it with an I love you. I love this because there are people who love me enough to sit me down. So to close, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns the, uh, another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. What a relationally mature community is like, is a loving church that doesn't just want to affirm where you're at and in a church that doesn't just judge you and walk away. A church that is united. A church that is patient and humble and forbearing. A church that is made up of people who you're sitting beside who are ready to go the distance with you as far as they are able. If you're one of those people who I've met with recently or one of those people who struggle with church, like you have to put your heart back out there. People are annoying and they will hurt you. Sanctuary is annoying and we will hurt you. There you go. Anybody who's ever stepped into any kind of marriage or relationship knows you got to put your heart back out there or it will not work. I know you've been burned and you got to do it. Some of you are in the midst of conflict. Paul says, don't come to the communion table. Don't come and take the bread and the cup and be reminded of God's love. If there's a disconnect of God's love somewhere else, go make a phone call. Go set up an email. Wait, it's just a reminder and practice that God desires us to be one. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Man. So I want to close with reading something. It's so hard to make services go a little shorter. About the Spirit wants me to do this. This is a letter that was written uh, by somebody in our community. Uh, we sent her last week, if you were here. And she wrote me a letter this week and just said, Dear Sanctuary, this is not written for a service. This is not written for a moment. 
So she's leaving community that she devoted to, herself to. She wrote, Dear Sanctuary, I have, for some time, she's also a writer, by the way, been in the habit of writing long love letters to people at the time of my departure as an examination of my grief in ensuing absences and as a way to share with them what I have seen in them, the ways I have been nourished by their presence. Writing becomes an exercise in gratitude that attunes me more deeply to reality. Funny how it takes heartbreak to recognize the fullness of a gift. She goes, I think now about how sanctuary always repeats the language making all things new. And I recognize this is a process of becoming And becoming means growing pains. It means purging. It means emptying, a coming and a going. It means movement through dark valleys and green pastures. When I first started attending sanctuary, I was in the darkest night of my soul, the darkest night of my soul of my life thus far. I remember after each one of the sermons, I would be left in a wreck in the pew, sobbing my eyes out. It became the only space where I could access my deep grief in a real way, where I could just sit with the stabbing in my heart. It was a safe place to say, I'm not okay. Though there were plenty of times I cried alone, I mostly look back and think with gratitude to the times a friend would come up behind me silently and simply rub my back as I sobbed, as if just to say, you are not alone. Other times, someone who I barely knew would sit with me and pray. Later, I became friends uh, with this woman, Tiffany, who she would just sit with me after church almost every Sunday, even after the pews had emptied, and cry with me as we shared our troubled hearts together in prayer. One time she assured me that God was collecting all my tears in bottles. I've held on to that image and the assurance that God wastes no raw material. I know that I could see all the hundreds of little glass bottles filled with my tears. It would be beautiful artwork. Community is a place where God collects tears. She goes on for a couple pages. (laughs) Dear church, be encouraged to know that you have taken part in God's work in me. Remember that every word and turned eye, the space you make, the time you pause, the orienting of of your every breath is all a choice with power. The potential to love radically, to devote with abandon, to welcome in and hold the darkness with the light and place in the hands of he who is making all things new. Do not grow sleepy and do not grow weary of doing good, but may you attend to reality with the love of an amateur with every curiosity and internal question to journey deeper still. And let my parting be a shout to God's transforming power to turn tears into rivers of life, a current that crosses permeable walls of uncertain direction with the embrace of peace. Grace and peace to you as you continue to journey to higher and deeper places. As you ponder our infinite God, move your body to delight in Jesus and breathe in the light of the spirit. All my love, Alyssa. This, uh, if you were to sit down with me and ask for my pastoral goals, for you, I would say, I hope you leave this church, you write a letter, however clumsy. Maybe you never send it in. You could say, I was a part of a community that is jacked up and messed up and hypocritical and strange and weird and whatever it is, they aggravating, they're forbearing love. It was a place where I met grace and peace and a place where I was able to lean in and give of my gifts and lean into my calling. They devoted themselves to one another. They devoted themselves to one another. What for you as we come to the table and close our time, where, where is God inviting you 
into deeper relationship and a deeper transparency. Maybe for you, it's putting your gifts on the table. Maybe for some of you, you realize the brokenness that exists in your heart. You need some healing. Maybe for some of you, you're like killing it. You just have like some of the best friends of your life right now. And what God's inviting you to do is like pour some gas on that thing. And what does it mean to step into mission together? I don't know where you are at, but I know even those, if you're new and you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope this was just like an interesting look in on a family talk of the people that we like desire to be in the world. And maybe there's something happening in your heart that makes you go, ah, maybe Jesus is king if there's a group of people in the heart of the city who are trying to love like this. Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on us, aggravating people. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for your spirit with us, how you empower us and equip us to love with great beauty and truth. And as we come to the table and close our time together, as we take the bread and as we dip it in the cup, may we be reminded of your great love and how that great love invites us to be a people who are relationally mature, who walk in humility and peace and patience. That you, Lord, would make new wine in this space and in this moment that we would encounter, Lord, heaven and your spirit today as we sing and worship and eat together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.